You're listening to episode 164 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchbord, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, we're back with Dr. Alan Strange, Professor of Church History. How are you doing this morning, Dr. Strange? I'm doing very well, and I trust that all of our listeners are. We pray for you as we know you pray for us, and we have a wonderful mutual fellowship of prayer and support in this great ministry that we're all about. We're all about service in the kingdom, and we're happy to do our part in it. Amen to that. Dr. Strange is joining us, continuing uh, our series on the early church and church history. And uh, we talked about the Cappadocian Fathers last time, and then he wrapped up by um, giving us a list of secondary sources for anyone interested in reading church history. Dr. Strange, there was another one that came to my mind, and I'm curious to see what you have to say about it, and that is uh, Nick Needham's series titled 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. You've heard of it. What do you think about it? Uh, Yes, I think that's a very fine set. Um, It, of course, is one of those larger sets, but uh, I believe there's just a a single volume for the ancient church, and it's well-written. So uh, if you wanted something uh, longer than Harry Bohr's book or of a bit of a different sort, Henry Chadwick's book that I mentioned comes from a more Anglican, less distinctly evangelical reform point of view like we have. So Needham uh, is a is a good one for that, I think. Gotcha. Dr. Strange, uh, in continuing our conversation here, you've indicated that Arianism uh, was still a problem in the years of Athanasius and the Cappadocians, who you discussed about last time. Uh, what role, though, did the council at Constantinople in 381 play in bringing this problem to a conclusion? Right. Well, let me just recall for us um, something that I had said earlier when I was talking about the aftermath of Nicaea and Arianism, not in our last time, but in the the previous time. And I mentioned that Athanasius and the Cappadocians, a formula kind of came about of mia usia tres hypostases, one uh, confessing the blessed, holy, undivided trinity as one in substance or essence and three in persons. And that's really, uh, though that language there is not specifically used, and it's really hard to trace exactly where it's first used and so forth, Constantinople more or less uh, affirms that clearly uh, and affirms some other particular things that go along with that. What happened uh, is that, uh, as you know, Gregory of Nazianzus uh, becomes the uh, patriarch or the archbishop of Constantinople. I was just referring to him as bishop, but it would be archbishop in a place like that, and actually what would be called a patriarchate. We'll talk a little bit about that later on at a different point. Uh, but the I talked about some of the problems with emperors, and Theodosius uh, has come to the throne now uh, in 380, and Theodosius uh, is the emperor of the empire as a whole. He's the single ruler, and he is a very committed, uh, orthodox Nicene emperor. He is committed to Nicene orthodoxy and opposing Arianism, and he convened this council uh, in Constantinople, where his the seat of his uh, power was, in 381 to, to really bring an end to the lengthy Arian controversy. And the council had 150 uh, bishops there who were Orthodox. There were also 
uh, 36 heretical bishops who took place, took, took part in that, uh, and uh, they were uh, corrected in varying measures. Interestingly, there were no Western bishops uh, there, or there were no Roman legates that would be a special representatives of the Bishop of Rome. So there were no representatives of the Bishop of Rome there, and there were no Western bishops at all. But, and you might say, well, then how could it be regarded since it was all Eastern and Greek in its representation? How could it be regarded as the second ecumenical council? Nicaea 325 was the first ecumenical council. This comes to be regarded as the second ecumenical council. And I think it's simply that it's... um, its theological formulation was compelling enough to to really win uh, acceptance across the board and so that it could become in East and West regarded mm-hmm. as this second council. Um, and the work of the council, uh, I'll just describe it uh, in a couple of ways here. The full consubstantial deity of Christ that was affirmed by Nicaea, that the Father and the Son were consubstantial, which is to say they were of the same substance, that was reaffirmed by Constantinople. In fact, uh, many of you are probably aware that in our hymnals or Psalter hymnals, uh, you may have where you see the Nicene Creed, and you say, well, that comes out of Nicaea. It does come out of Nicaea, but it's finished and added to and put in the form that we use it coming out of Constantinople. So sometimes it's referred to as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Mm. And the reason is, is because of the uh, affirmation of Constantinople, and you might say the the finishing of that. And th- it, it published seven canons. These are decrees of the council. And the first canon uh, anathematized uh a number having to do with the Arian controversy. It athematized the Anamoeans. Remember, these were the folks who said that the Father and the Son, they emphasized their dis- their differences or their distinctions. These You had those spirit fighters also mm-hmm. among them. They just broadly anathematized the Arians. Uh, they anathematized the Semiarians, and they also did specifically mention these Numatamaki. They anathematized the Sabellians, and you remember, we have talked about this before, the Sabellians are what are called modalists, which is to say they believe God is one, but he's radically one, and he's not really three persons. He's three appearances. He's mm. three um, faces, you might say. He takes on these different faces at different times as suits his purposes, right. but he's not eternally distinct in three persons. That was condemned. Uh, and then there's uh, a few others uh, whose teaching was condemned, the teaching of Marcellus, uh, the teaching of Photinus, and the teaching of Apollinaris. Marcellus. That's a name I'm not super familiar yeah. with. Can you... Can you uh Tell us a little bit more about him and his teaching. Yeah, and our, our listeners uh, may have heard about that last one, uh, Apollinaris, but uh, that's a good question. Who is Marcellus? Uh, Marcellus, I just described Sabellianism, so you've got, you've got that modalism in mind. Marcellus taught a more subtle form of this, you might say. And here's what he taught. 
he taught that in the unity of the Godhead, so in the oneness of the Godhead, the Son and the Spirit only emerge as distinct entities uh, for the purposes of creation and redemption. So that, think of God in eternity. Think of in the beginning God. And so you have there, God, Marcellus would say, you have this oneness in God. And with creation and with redemption, uh, you have this Son and Spirit emerge as independent and distinct entities. They're distinct, hmm. but they emerge at this point. And after the redemptive work of Christ is achieved, they are, the Father, excuse me, the Son and the Spirit are resumed again into the divine unity. And what they're doing there, what Marcellus was doing, was interpreting uh, wrongly, but seeking to interpret 1 Corinthians 15.28. And our, you might recall there, Paul is giving this gorgeous argument, that's in the great resurrection chapter, but he talks about Christ achieving all of this and, as it were, handing over the kingdom and he himself being subject to the Father, mm. and God will be all in all. So Marcellus has this view, it's a variant of modalism, where God in eternity past was just one uh, with maybe different aspects, but he becomes, these aspects become distinct and separate identities uh, in in time, in creation and redemption. And once Christ has achieved this, he hands it over. And once again, you could think of the spirit, the son and the spirit are sort of swallowed back up mm. into the unity of the Godhead. Interesting. And which means, and, and I say this for our listeners, when we say in the Nicene Creed, whose kingdom shall have no end, that was specifically added at this point mm. to refute Marcellus. Oh, interesting. Because okay. he says Christ's kingdom ends there. Sure. And it's all back in the Father. Right. And so part of the way they refuted it was to say, whose kingdom shall have no end. And so you can see how that all got put together. Um, also, uh, Photinus uh, was a follower of Marcellus. And we're not sure. He had some kind of a variant of that view. We don't really know what it was. All his writings were destroyed. But that was also condemned. But I mentioned Apollinarius. Mm -hmm. uh, he's either called Apollinarius uh, uh, or uh, Apollinaris. You hear it said differently. Sometimes it has the I, sometimes it doesn't. What Apollinaris or Apollinarius said was Christ had indeed, he, he, he confessed that Christ is fully God. He had no question about that. Christ is fully God. And what happens when he becomes a man? And Apollinarius says, well, he takes a human body right? And a human soul. But the spirit aspect of the soul, he says, is replaced in Christ by the Logos. So Christ is fully God, but he's not fully human hmm. because he doesn't have a fully human soul. Oh, okay. The Logos has come in and replaced it. So unlike Arius, Arius did not, Arius would say Christ was fully man, mm -hmm. but he was not fully God, truly God. And Apollinarius would say something of the opposite. He was truly God, but he wasn't truly man hmm. because the Logos replaced that soul in him. Uh, and so that's something that was condemned. Another thing, though, that we really need to talk about, and that's an important thing. So if you think of the arch heretics, I mentioned that last time, 
Um, that would be Arius at Nicaea in 325. And now at Constantinople, the arch heretic is Apollinarius. One made the mistake about not fully affirming the deity of Christ, and the other made the mistake, Apollinarius, about not affirming the humanity. Mm-hmm. You say, my goodness, they cut it closely. Oh, yes. <laughs> and you have to properly affirm both. And um, now I'm quoting from, if any of you are interested, here's another resource. Uh, there's a fascinating two-volume book called The Decrees of the Ecumenical Councils, uh, and it has all of the decrees. in They're in Latin and Greek, and they translate them into English. And it's uh, it's a two volume set. It isn't cheap. Uh, Decrees of the and the and Norman P. Tanner T A double N E R is the editor of this. Norman P. Tanner Decrees of the Ecumenical Councils, published by Georgetown Sheed and Ward. And um, there's this very interesting third canon that says this: because it is New Rome, the Bishop of Constantinople is to enjoy the privileges of honor after the Bishop of Rome. And you might say, well, that's no problem. It is saying here, I mean, it shouldn't be a problem for Rome because Rome is being said to be first and now Constantinople is said to be second. But notice the reason that they say Constantinople is second. They say it's second now because it's new Rome, meaning Rome, old Rome, was the original seat of the empire. And that's why it had the honor that it did in the church. And New Rome, Constantinople, is now the seat of the empire, and it has this second place of honor. I cannot tell you how much the Bishop of Rome, when he read this, was jumping up and down. That is to say, he was hopping mad. Mm. And he was hopping mad because from his perspective, they see the Bishop of Rome as having a first place of honor for political reasons for reasons of Rome having been the original capital of the empire. And he's saying and arguing, it's not because we're the capital of the empire. They're beginning to make the argument, this is the seat of Peter. Peter established, Peter and Paul established this church. And that's why this church has the primacy, not because of these political reasons. And now that Constantinople is the capital, it doesn't properly get it for those reasons. So, Rome did not like that at all, but nonetheless saw that it was in its interest to embrace its teaching because Rome agreed with what it said about the theology. Well, thank you for that brief description of the First Council of Constantinople, Dr. Strange. Next time, he's going to be talking about a very famous preacher, his name, John Chrysostom. Very much looking forward to that. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.